Would you pray with me, please? Oh God, open our hearts and minds and souls to hear your word as if we were hearing it for the first time. Help us experience anew the surprise and joy that your presence in the word can bring us. Through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So it is still Easter, and one of the traditional greetings of the church at Easter is for me to say to you, Christ is risen, and you to say back, the Lord is risen indeed, and then we say together, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. So we're going to practice that because we're going to need it at the end of the sermon, okay? Christ is risen. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. You can do better. <laughs> Let's get excited. Christ is risen. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. When I was in high school, I worked slash volunteered in an after-school program at an urban YMCA in Bir Birmingham, Alabama. The program had a few paid professional staff, but it was mostly staffed by teenagers who, like me, loved hanging out with kids, playing games and sports, teaching them to swim. I think it was in my junior year when those of us in that group of teenagers decided to do a Bible study together. Sean would be the leader. By then, he was taking junior college courses and he had already decided he wanted to be an evangelist. He would tell us about going into the woods to practice preaching to the trees. He was on fire for God, and, and he told us about this new kind of baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where you would you know, just be infused by the Spirit if you received that baptism. I remember the day he interpreted part of the book of Revelation for us, and I went home terrified, hoping that the prophecies would not happen in my lifetime. And after that day, some in the group, including my best friend, dropped out. And for a while, it caused a rift in our friendship. But I stuck with the Bible study, continuing to learn things about the Bible, that certainly were not being taught in my middle-class, white, suburban, United Methodist Church. It's been a long time ago, so I don't remember exactly how it happened, but Sean and his friend Ricky had also met some other Christians there in Birmingham who had the same type of theology, and, and somehow my friend Kathy and I ended up at the home of another couple one afternoon with Sean and Ricky. So there were six of us there, and, and I remember that I was pretty uncomfortable the whole time, and finally it was time to leave, and we stood up and gathered in a circle, holding hands as we prayed together, and you've been in those types of circles. And it was that typical circle until Sean and Ricky and the other couple started praying in tongues. And I opened an eye to see what was happening, and I saw Kathy across the circle with an eye open, with a panic-stricken look on her face, which I am sure was the same look that was on my face. And 
We didn't know what to do. I think we stayed for the amen, but we got out of there as quickly as we could afterwards. And I didn't go to Sean's Bible study anymore after that. That was my first major crisis of faith. It wasn't until years later when I was working on my Master's of Christian Education that I studied James Fowler's research into the stages of faith, and, and I learned that that was actually a time when I was moving from one stage of faith to another, and I was beginning to claim my faith for myself and figuring out what it was that I believed. But at the time, what I felt was shame and embarrassment that my faith did not measure up, that my faith was not big enough for these other Christians. And, and so I felt very alone at that time because I could have never spoken out loud what I was feeling then. And I would have never thought to talk to one of the pastors at my church. I had never heard of spiritual formation or spiritual directors, and I would have given no credence to any such thing anyway. My faith was all in my head. And that's what makes this Sunday so important. Now that the euphoria of Easter has subsided, the Carolina brass packed up their instruments and went home. The lilies and the ferns and the geraniums mostly got picked up or got thrown away. Easter brunch is over and all that's left is the credit card bill. Thank goodness the butterflies are still here. But I wonder how many of us are saying to ourselves, now what? Do I really believe that Easter story? Maybe there are a few who are like, so what? And that brings us to the text for the day. There are two stories in this text that Becky read. These are the next two immediately following the Easter proclamation that we heard read last week. John, John describes two more resurrection appearances by Jesus to the disciples. In the first appearance, Thomas is not with them. And when the others tell Thomas, he's like, I don't believe y'all. Y'all are crazy. Dead men do not rise from the dead. They never did. They never will. So unless I see him and touch him for myself, I am not believing anything of the kind. In an essay entitled, This is My Body, Debbie Thomas writes this. What strikes me most about Thomas's story is not that he doubted, but, did he, but that he did so publicly without shame or guilt and that his faith community allowed him to do so. Because isn't this all of us on the Sunday after Easter? Don't we all wonder sometimes if the miracle of resurrection will hold in ordinary time? If nothing else, Thomas reassures me that faith doesn't have to be straightforward. The business of accepting the resurrection, of living it out, of sharing it with the world, 
is tough. It's okay to waver. It's okay to take our time. It's okay to hope for more. It's okay to hope for more. Doubt can be both terrifying and discouraging. And yet if we can allow ourselves to stand in our doubt long enough, we can discover answers and meaning and hope again. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was a preacher's kid. He was trained for the priesthood at Oxford, and he was an ordained Anglican priest. And yet there was a time in his ministry where he was burned out and not sure of his own salvation. And so he approached his mentor, a Moravian by the name of Peter Bowler, thinking that he should stop preaching. And Bowler replied, by no means. Then Wesley asked, but what can I preach? And Bowler answered, preach faith till you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach faith. Preach faith. I would say practice faith until you have it. And then, because you have it, you will preach faith. Wesley took Bowler's advice, and although he was still unsure of his own salvation, he shared the gospel with a man on death row named Clifford. This began a long ministry of stepping beyond the bounds of his perceived faith to do extraordinary works for God. There's a book called Uncommon Gratitude, Alleluia for All That Is. And the authors write this. There is simply a point in life when reason fails to satisfy our awareness of what is clearly unreasonable and clearly real at the same time, like love and self-sacrifice and trust and good. Data does not exist to explain these unexplainable things. And then hear this. Then only the doubt that opens our hearts to what we cannot comprehend, only the doubt that makes us rapidly pursue the truth, only the doubt that moves us beyond complacency, only the doubt that corrects mythologies not worthy of faith can lead us to the, spirit, the purer air of spiritual truth. Then we are ready to move beyond the senses into the mystical, where faith shows us those penetrating truths the eye cannot see. Faith shows us those penetrating truths the eye cannot see. That brings us to the second of the two stories in the text. It is now a week later, it's today, and all of the disciples, including Thomas, are back in that same house again, Clearly, none of them have figured out what they're to do with the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Clearly, they are still saying, now what? And so Jesus, the risen Christ, comes to them again, still with his nail-scarred hands and his puncture-wounded side, and he always speaks peace 
be with you. And now this becomes the tale of who God is. It's not who Thomas is anymore, and it's not who we are. This is about God coming to us wherever we might be. You see, it's Jesus who's determined to reach Thomas. It's Jesus who refuses to let deadbolts or chains block the movement of love toward the one who lacks faith. It is Jesus who comes to meet us when doubt does its best to crowd out hope. Even if we are out on the far edge of faith that has forgotten how to believe, it is God who comes seeking us, stepping through walls and hardships that build around us. It's God who offers us love and grace and peace in the midst of our own personal questions and, and profound questions about life. It is God who is there in those moments when life's most brutal violence is honestly acknowledged. And it is God who, when we feel that we are most alone, comes and tells us that we are not alone, but we are always already found. I would not tell you if I did not believe that it was true. In May of 2015, in between Easter and Pentecost, I had the privilege to go to Iona, a small island off the western coast of Scotland. Iona is known as one of those thin places on earth where the separation between earth and heaven is very small, and sometimes it's difficult to know which is which. I went with a group of grad students from Pfeiffer University to do an intro class into spiritual direction. Our group arrived on the island late on a Saturday afternoon. Everyone in the group other than me was staying at a large house together on the island. I had chosen to stay in a B&B &B by myself. I needed the rest. I knew that I was going to be coming here in that July, and so when I got home, there would be just a few more sermons at my other church and a lot of packing to do. The week before I left for the trip, my sister entered rehab. She had been told by the Florida Board of Nursing that she had to go. For years, she had been under the care of a pain management specialist, and yet she was addicted to opioids. Her inpatient assessment recommended 90 days in rehab. She would lose her nursing license if she did not go. So she went, literally kicking and screaming, telling me that everyone was lying about her. She would prove everyone wrong, and she would be out in three to four days, a week at most. She had her cell phone and her computer. She would be in touch with me every day, except that when she got there, they took her cell phone and computer so that she could not communicate with the outside world. For the first few days, the detox unit communicated with her now ex-husband, and he communicated with me and our mother that everything was okay. Then there was no more word. 
It must have been Tuesday on Iona when I received a call from the rehab center telling me that they needed money. My sister had decided to stay, and her husband either couldn't or wouldn't borrow the money for it. At $3,000 per week, she was by then almost $9,000 in the hole. And it was both windy and rainy on the island, so it was practically impossible to have a phone conversation with anyone here in the U.S. I felt totally alone. I had not taken my computer, so I had no access to email or the Internet. I wasn't close enough to anyone in my group to share what was happening. Now, I know that most of you have already done the math, and you know what kind of money we're talking about here. I also know that some of you could write a check without blinking. But for a pastor on close to minimum salary, even taking on the debt my sister already had was a huge risk. And I knew the statistics. I know what the relapse rates for addiction are. And I wondered if medical professionals can even return to work after rehab. Who would even hire someone like that? Can they actually make a decent salary? I knew that even if we maxed out the credit card, there wouldn't be enough to pay the whole amount. And if we maxed out the credit card, we would lose our own safety net. But this was my sister, my only sister. I didn't sleep at all on Tuesday night, and I was totally disengaged from the group all day Wednesday. The professor made it clear how completely and thoroughly put out with me she was. I was able to get through to John long enough to ask him to put the current charges and the past few charges on the credit card, but I was still unsure what to do about the rest. An idea had come into my mind to borrow the rest of the money from my 401k, but that would be a tremendous risk. There would be no way that I could make the payments if my sister couldn't get a job and keep it. And this image of her homeless on the streets, pushing the shopping cart and standing in soup kitchen lines kept swirling around in my mind. I got into bed on Wednesday night in a deep state of anxiety. I felt as though I was going to bust a blood vessel in my head and just stroke out. Talking about it even now makes me feel the angst of that night. And it was dark and the wind was still swirling as much as my mind was swirling. And I was huddled up in fear, cold and alone on an island thousands of miles away from home. God help me was the only prayer that I could pray. And then it happened. I didn't see him, but I could feel his presence. My body was filled with a warmth that was not the heat. 
I didn't hear it with my ears, but I heard it nonetheless. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Always the sign that the risen Christ is with us. I knew in that moment what to do. And then I slept. You see, this is about our God coming to us, wherever we might be. This is the risen Christ who is determined to reach each one of us. It is the risen Christ who refuses to let deadbolts and chains block the movement of love toward those of us who lack faith. It is the risen Christ who comes to us even when doubt does its best to crowd out hope, even if we are out on the far edge of faith and have forgotten how to believe. Our God comes seeking us, stepping through walls that hardship builds around us, offering us love and grace and peace in the midst of our most profound and desperate questions about life. Our God, our God, is there in those moments when life's most brutal violence is honestly acknowledged. And it is our God who, when we feel most alone, comes and tells us that we are not alone, but we are always already found. I would not tell you if I did not know that it is true. That's the end of my part of the story. But I wonder if you might be interested in hearing the rest. Do you want to know more? The short version. I borrowed the money from my 401k. I loaned it to my sister. Next month, she will have been clean for four years with no relapse. She has a decent job in the medical profession, not the one that she wants yet, but one that pays the bills nonetheless. She attends meetings, both NA and AA, several times per week. She leads a meeting especially for nurses. She is tested regularly for alcohol and drugs, and has never failed a test. Next July of 2020, she'll be out from under the nursing board's supervision. And in November of 2020, she'll have completely paid me back with interest. And she has promised me a trip back to Iona. We know that we are the lucky ones. Not too long ago, she and I were talking about how close she is to closing out this chapter of her life. And she said to me, you saved my life. I never told her the story that I just told you about that night. In fact, until last night's worship service, I never told anyone afraid that no one would believe me. But when the right time comes, I will tell her this. I didn't save your life. The risen Christ saved us both.
I would not tell you if it were not true. And Jesus said to them, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The Lord is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.